0: Patagonia, REI, and other outdoor clothing and equipment retailers are speaking out against President Trump's plan to slash the size of two national monuments in Utah by some two million acres. Mr. Trump on Monday announced that his administration would shrink Bears Ears National Monument, a region of Red Rock Canyons, by 85%, and cut another monument, Grand Staircase Escalante, to about half its current size. The president stole your land, Patagonia said in a pop-up message on its website. In an illegal move, the president just reduced the size of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. This is the largest elimination of protected land in American history. That was the beginning of an article in the New York Times. This is a conversation with the Director of Environmental Campaigns and Advocacy at Patagonia, Hans Kohl. In this conversation we talk about the current fight to protect Bears Ears National Monument. Here's a quick
1: clip from the conversation. Bears Ears was the first monument proclamation to mention climbing
0: Whoa. specifically
1: okay. as a value, as a value on the landscape, as you know, this is a place that's valuable because people love to climb there because yeah. this is this is something they feel so passionate This
0: conversation was recorded about a month ago at Patagonia's headquarters, but the fight to protect Bears Ears is just heating up. You as a U.S. citizen hold deed to this land, and it's being threatened. So head over to Patagonia.com. And get involved you can also reach out to me at any time by going to my website kyle.surf or reaching out on instagram with recommendations for new guests feedback on the show i love hearing from you and it's how we make this show better so without further ado please welcome the director of environmental campaigns and advocacy at patagonia mr hans cole
1: how long have you been at Patagonia? Long time, right? Yeah, I've been here going on 10 years. So longer than anywhere else in my life, that's for sure. Um, but it's been, you know, it's been a pretty wild ride. It's been never a dull moment here since since I got to the company. So it's been a great time.
0: Yeah. Well, there's so much innovation happening with, uh, in regards to kind of writing a new rule book mm-hmm. around philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was, do, are there other companies or were there other companies that when you came in, you modeled the environmental team after?
1: You know, I, I don't think so. I think we really went our own way and I think we, you know, really we're creating a new model here. Um, the cool thing about it is it's a new model for the rest of the world, but it's like core, sort of DNA level stuff for Patagonia I mean this stuff goes so deep for the people who you know founded this company and the people who worked here have worked here over the years um, you know all the values that, that sort of run throughout our grants program and our campaigns and everything we do are these long-standing sort of bedrock things for us right what are those values Well it's you know it's things like uh, supporting the grassroots so you know supporting small groups, With small amounts of money, campaigns that are at that grassroots level where you're supporting, you know, the friends of the Ventura River, where it's a couple of folks, maybe one or two people, they're probably volunteers, they're not involved in a huge national level organization that has a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of overhead and a lot of expense, but They're getting more done for this local place than a lot of those big green groups and big organizations do.
0: Do you find that that is a common theme that more gets done uh, with smaller groups because they're more nimble and maybe have a better sense of what the solutions are, what what solutions are needed on the ground rather than having this kind of 10,000 foot organization swoop in and maybe not have uh,
1: the right idea of the culture or what's needed? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, these having local people um, fired up and ready to fight for their local place is hands down the most powerful tool you can wield if you want to make change, especially on environmental issues. But I think across the board on almost anything, um, because, though you know, if you have that, if you have that energy, um, there's nothing about the politics at the national level. Or, or you know, there's nothing about sort of these these sort of winds that blow back and forth that can undermine that, right? Um, you know, you can have if you have people on that local level um, who believe in it and who are ready to fight long battles to protect a place. Um, you know, that's that's gold. I mean, that's absolutely what every campaign must have at a bedrock level. If you don't have that, you're kind of just making stuff up. You're, you know, you're, it's all, it's all sort of surface. It's all just, you know, marketing or language. It's, it's, it's not the depth that you need.
0: Right. Well, you can have, you can hate Trump, right? But if you, if you tweet at Trump, if you're just average Joe, like, yeah, that might have an effect, but it's probably gonna have a much larger effect on your local mayor. If you have a campaign directed to get them to save a river or Um, engage in a local issue you're going to have, like, I think that people put too much emphasis on national politics and not enough emphasis on local politics
1: across the board. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And I think that's the lesson that we're learning again. And we learn this, you know, I think every, every few years or every few cycles, um, with our elections, is yeah, you've got it. You got to have the ground game. You got to have the local folks um, tied in. And if you do, then again, no matter what party or political you know uh, group is in power, you can still have that influence because everyone does care. Whether you're a mayor or actually whether you're a member of Congress as well, you know you care about what your local constituents are saying and thinking. Right. And what they and what people say or think at the local level and their votes and their ability to keep you in power, I mean, that's going to sway you right. for sure, no matter what party you're a part of. Um,
0: what have you, uh, what examples of that have you seen in the 10 years that you've worked here using that
1: strategy for grassroots activism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me think of a good, uh, a good example. I think, um, you know, I think a really powerful example of... You know, diverse grassroots community engagement Um, over the past couple years has been this Bears Ears campaign that we've been really heavily involved in in southeastern Utah. You know, here's a place um, out in in this region in Utah that should have been protected 50 years ago. I mean, it's an incredibly beautiful place. It's it's mind blowingly, you know, scenic. There's incredible climbing, there's recreation, there's over a hundred thousand archaeological sites. I mean, this place, this place is like, you know, begging to be protected and should have been protected a long time ago. What does it Um, look like? It's, you know, it's these incredible canyons and rock outcrops. It's, you know, it's a dry landscape, but that those, those sort of red rock and, you know, colors and, and, uh, um you know really just breathtaking vistas you sort yeah. of walk up to the edge of a cliff and you look out across mile upon mile of these columns that just come out of of the landscape right right okay and, i'm getting a good scene of this i mean it's it's beautiful like it's it's just incredible and the the cultural history is incredibly rich you know this is a place where a number of different tribes have called this place home for thousands of years um you know you're literally i was out there um, a year or so ago, just uh, visiting the place and, and hiking around with some folks on the ground, you almost can't take a step without crunching on top of a pot shard uh, that's thousands of years old, or, or stepping, you know, into an ancient ruin or or town, you know, that was inhabited by some of the original people who were on that landscape. I mean, it's so dense with that kind of history and culture that you're just surrounded by it. It's, it's, it's under you. It's next to you. It's all over the place. And it's so yeah.
0: important to have a reverence and respect and just acknowledgement of all of the people who have been here before us. Cause in Big Sur, I go there a lot and there are, uh, there were native American tribes that went through there. So every once in a while you'll see a, a rock that uh, has been ground down and it's almost like a little burn mark in it. And mm-hmm. it's where they would grind down the acorns mm-hmm. and you think, wow,
1: pretty cool. hundred yeah, years it, ago,
0: there were people here.
1: It gives you chills. It, it gives really you does. chills. I mean, it's, it's so crazy. cool. And the people, you know, for Patagonia, you know, we, uh, people who go to Indian Creek, which is this really world renowned climbing area, crack climbing, you know, happens there. And it's, again, just incredibly beautiful. You know, we feature it, feature it in, in photos and catalogs and films many times over the years. Um, you know, those, that sort of modern climber was predated by, um, you know, ancient people who were climbing, and they have these steps that were carved into the rock to go up to these, you know, uh, these dwellings that were tucked into alcoves, hundreds of feet off the ground, probably as a defensive measure, as a way to sort of protect themselves, or, or, you know, they probably had various reasons for doing it that way, but there's sort of this, you know, this heritage of like ancient climbers and dwellers of the, of, the, of the land all the way through modern where you have these people doing, you know, sort of sport crack climbing in Indian Creek. So there's some really neat sort of threads that tie together the past and the present. And, you know, getting back to sort of how important the grassroots is there in local people, um, you know, this is a place that, while it should have been protected 50 years ago, wasn't on the map at all uh, for the Obama administration, for example, you know, the Obama administration and President Obama himself, you know, came into office and, you know, not not that big of an enviro guy. Like he he really had a lot of issues that he cared about. Obviously, health care came on early in his his time, but it took a ton of work to get him personally and also his whole team up to speed on places like Bears Ears. So previously was
0: Bears Ears public land or was it privately owned land? What was... It's public
1: land. A lot of it. A lot of it's public land. Bureau of Land Management, BLM land. Mostly BLM, some Forest Service. Okay. Um, Unprotected. You know, it is definitely right in the path of a wave of energy development that is moving across that region, um, kind of east to west. Uh, Lots of oil drilling, uh, essentially. And you can see also the degradation that these oil drills and, and the excavation and the noise and the dust and all the pollution that comes with that, you know, out on that same landscape, you can be walking along next to an ancient village, you know, thousands of years old, and there's an oil drill, you know, oil well, they're banging away 24 uh, seven, making its impact. So it's absolutely threatened. It's really at risk. It should be protected. And but it took a ton of work to bring it onto the radar of, you know, the last administration, you know, they, they, you know, had some interest, but not a lot, but what really convinced them was the native American voice. Um, the tribes came together in that area, the recreation voice, which we were really involved in sort of mobilizing climbers and people who would get out on that landscape to, to recreate and camp and hike and do what, do what we love to do. Those groups coming together, and even more than just the environmental groups, it was the people on the ground who were convincing to President Obama and Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell, and all the other folks who had to be convinced that this place was worth protecting, especially in the face of the political climate in the state of Utah, which is highly conservative. You know, Utah politicians across the board with very few exceptions don't love the federal government coming into their state to run things or dictate how they manage their land it's just a part of their history Um, but if you have 60 70 percent 80 percent of local people saying we want this place protected because we know what, what it's all about. We know the value. We're part of the tribes who have lived here for thousands of years. We're part of the people who come out here every weekend and drive 12 hours from other cities in the region to go crack climbing at Indian Creek. You know, we love this place, and we know it better than anyone else, and we're telling you it needs to be protected. That's how you get places saved, and that was the story, and that was the, um, you know, the, the movement that inspired the designation of Bears Ears National Monument as one of the last and the largest of the monuments, the land monuments that the Obama administration designated at the end end of their term last year. So there is a misconception,
0: I think, for a lot of people that public land, BLM land, means that it's protected already. Right. But that's not true because the slogan of BLM land is is the land of many uses. Right. Absolutely. So there can be BLM land and drilling on it right absolutely and and yep. and BLM land that is mismanaged and so that is kind of like a an overarching uh, I guess uh, designation but but then to have a national monument designates that there and, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of us it, it says that there can be no um,
1: resource extraction in that area is that correct So it depends on the management plan. The thing about a monument is after you designate a monument, the president does that through something called the Antiquities Act. There's a plan that's created, and it's created with local stakeholders on the ground, and they make decisions about what can happen on that land and what can't happen on that land. In the proclamation that the president puts out initially, there will be some indication of what may or may not be allowed. Um, With monuments, typically there is uh, no additional or new oil and gas drilling or mining that happens within a new national monument. That's the typical approach. Um, oftentimes things like grazing are grandfathered in. So if there's cattle grazing on the land landscape that, you know, previously was allowed, right. that's typically allowed to continue. Um, things like recreation, hunting and fishing, um, you know uh, climbing all all the different things that we engage in you know for the most part through you know our our community and company in the recreation industry are very much allowed and often very specifically called out in fact Bears Ears was the first monument proclamation to mention climbing
0: Whoa. specifically
1: okay. as a value as a value on the landscape as it, you know this is a place that's valuable because people love to climb there because yeah. this is this is something they feel so passionate about so um But that management plan is definitely key. And so the other thing that people don't realize is once the designation happens, that's where the work starts. And that's also where having the local community fully engaged from day one is critical because you got to create that plan. And you've got to have that plan work going forward from now until the end of time.
0: So is that when Patagonia gets involved? So there are local groups that will then help manage on the ground like walk me through what happens yeah, behind the scenes in your with your involvement.
1: So that's a great question. You know, often the way we get started with um being involved in protecting a place or a campaign like that is we typically are we have some connection to the landscape. So again, in this case, we we knew climbers, our our climbing ambassadors, you know, were out there on a regular basis. We were hearing about this place for a long time. We also were giving some small grants to groups like the Friends of Cedar Mesa and Utah Dine Bekea, which is a Navajo grassroots environmental group on the ground there. Um, We've been giving some grants to those groups for years around, you know, their work just doing some small scale protection and, and thinking about larger scale. And then we saw it start to pick up steam and we said, said to ourselves, well, and the groups asked us also, we got invited by the groups, you know, to use this sort of marketing muscle and this, this megaphone that we have as a company to help their effort along and to increase the volume on the campaign that these local people were very much driving. Right. So that's really where we often come in as we say, okay, what if we created a film? Or what if we create a series of images and stories that are shared with our audience to raise this sort of, you know, this kind of off the radar issue to national prominence? Yeah. Get people to care about it. Get people to care about it. And frankly, you know, if you want to designate a national monument or if you want to get a national park created or if you want to create some wilderness areas that are protected, you do have to raise the volume because you do need people in Congress. You need possibly the president, the administration, to pay attention. So that's where Patagonia has a lot of strength. We can come in with our ability to, to make films and to, to have our audience of a couple million people nationwide start to say, whoa, I didn't even know, what is, what's Bears Ears? Like, I don't even know what that right, is. Right. You know, like, what is that place? And then we start to blow people's minds with film and images and story and highlighting what local people are doing. And then you know, and so we do it with a combination. It's, it's some funding because what grassroots groups often need is some financial support. They need the money to be able to do what they're doing on the ground, marketing support. And then if we get the place designated, we like to stay involved. You know, we want to see our people going back there to visit. We want to encourage people to get out there in the landscape and actually be a part of this new monument. We want, you know, right now there's, um, This group, Friends of Cedar Mesa, uh, which is based in Bluff, which is right on the outskirts of the monument, um, sort of boundaries. The guy who runs it, Josh Ewing, is this climber. Really cool guy. He had a political career in Salt Lake City. You know, really kind of a high-powered guy who spent all of his weekends driving all the way down to Indian Creek and other places out in Bears Ears to climb. Right. And eventually moved down there. And became the leader of this group the Friends of Cedar Mesa you know here's a guy who has tons of I mean he's super smart guy you know he's he a lot of experience in the political sort of realm and he's chosen to put all that experience and and intelligence to work to protect the place so we you know Josh is um, living there and we've been supporting him for years but now he wants to do things like create the first visitor center for Bears Ears right there in Bluff that can be sort of a gateway for people coming to visit the area. So they can visit with respect and enjoy the place and really understand what it's all about. Sure. So we want to, you know, supporting things like that ongoing. So in regards to the Bears Ears example, were you
0: targeting the secretary of interior because that was the woman who could make the decision to designate it? was that the main person? Were there congressmen in the area that you were also designating? Because it, I mean, you're obviously not going to go after a congressman in Hawaii if you're trying to protect something in Utah. And this was kind of my point about activism that's unfocused, you know, mm-hmm. trying to just throw shit at the wall and hope that someone pays attention rather than being super laser focused on when the election is happening, who you should actually get to care about this and what really needs to happen.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, you know, the, um, the effort over the years, and this was many years. So this is four, five, six year long campaign to start with. Um, there were a couple of tracks, you know, one possibility was that this, this area could get protected through legislation. So that's an act of Congress. So to do that, you have to convince members of Congress to put a bill forth that would protect the area. Now, the congressional delegation in Utah is tough in terms of these things. You know, they typically do not want to see additional federally protected land in their state. They did happen to be working on a bill, uh, it was called the PLI or the Public Lands Initiative, that was their take on what to do with this landscape. And we definitely said, hey, great, do that, show it to us. If we're supportive, we'll we'll get behind it. Um, They took, they delayed, they delayed, they took forever, it didn't come out. I mean, and it was stall tactics. Like it was like to really put the truth on it, you know, they were delaying on purpose. They didn't really want to see the place protected. Eventually after a lot of pressure uh, from the public, they did put something out and it was terrible. It had a ton of allowances for resource extraction, Um, it had new roads that would be allowed. It had everything from oil and gas to logging to, you know, things that frankly, this landscape, I mean, if you go out there, you'll see that, uh, it's sensitive. It cannot handle this kind of heavy use and also protect all the value that it has, um, culturally and environmentally. So that legislative approach did not work. Um, even though a lot of the groups involved, uh, would, would have loved to have seen a good bill, you know, go through Congress. So the monument approach was the other way um, to get this done. And national monuments get designated by the president. And the president has the power under the Antiquities Act um, to do so, um, to protect places like this, to protect objects, to protect landscapes. And so the target with the monuments campaign was President Obama specifically. Now, he definitely has lots of people working for him, like Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell, um, you know, the people running the BLM, like Neil Kornsey, uh, you know, various folks underneath the president. And so the campaign to, to encourage the president to do this, to designate this place as a national monument, involved, you know, literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of meetings with all of his staff, with all of his team. You know, it also involved inviting people out on the landscape. You got to get people out there. The, the best place to protect, I mean, the best way to protect a place is to be out there. Yep. In it. So, you know, tours and public meetings and, you know, there, there's this sort of rhetoric or this story right now that the Trump administration is trying to put out that these things are designated without public input or that the, the people on the ground aren't being heard. That's the story they're trying to tell. Hmm. And I can't stress enough that. it is it is simply not true with Bears Ears in particular you know there were so there were years there was years of public outreach and communication and town by town meetings and communication happening around you know why this place deserves to be protected right
0: well I think that it's important to also recognize that politicians have people from both sides in their ears right they have they have people who want to make this a monument in their ear and they also have lobbyists from resource extraction companies in their other year and saying, hey, we're going to donate to your campaign. Hey, this would be a really great way to get the United States off of foreign oil. Mm -hmm. And they have many times much deeper pockets than people on the environmental side, right? So what is the role of environmental lobbyists? Because it seems like that they are a major conduit in this system to get stuff done because there are lobbyists on both sides that are constantly trying to sway politicians can you just give me a little bit of a background on people who might not get that that part of it which i think is a very important and largely underexposed uh section
1: yeah well i think first of all you know it's important to you know talk about lobbying you know there's it's kind of It kind of has a negative connotation for a a lot of folks. It's a very dirty word. Dirty word, because people think of, you know, the combination of lots of money, campaign contributions, and then someone going into the office of of an elected person to sway them using that kind of influence, using money in particular. Right. Happens all the time. And absolutely, you know, in terms of the extractive industries out there, this is a primary tactic that they use to, you know, get what they want in terms of new places to explore and and drill and whatnot. So, you know, environmental lobbying from sort of the nonprofit sector has a very different flavor to it. It's I almost mean, <laughs> like an oxymoron. Yeah, people like, don't even think I mean, about it is, that you know, way. If you think of lobbying as just trying to convince someone, uh, you know, to, to sort of communicating with right. a purpose um, to convince someone, you know, in, in the case of a campaign and an environmental issue, it is, you right. know, there, I can tell you there's almost no money involved, right. <laughs> if not zero. Uh, the, the influence that you're wielding is a constituency. It's, you know, when you go to speak to, to members of Congress, what you're saying is, I'm someone from this area, or I am from this area and I speak on behalf of a lot of other people who live there, who are impacted by this, who, again, that grassroots those grassroots sort of groups. So if you go and you lobby on behalf of an issue, you've got to have the grassroots behind you. Um, It's either that or you have money behind you. It's usually not both. And, you know, I'd rather be one of the folks with the grassroots behind me. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's that's where we're coming from. And that's what, you know, I think, you know, when, even when companies in the outdoor industry go to speak out on behalf of public lands, for example, we're not wielding money. We're wielding, a constituency. We're saying, look, the people we, who are connected to Patagonia, and this is, you know, a community of people who climb and surf and camp and hike and do all these things, you know, ski and do all these things that we love to do. These people, um, care about a place, they care about something enough that they want us to speak out on behalf of it. And I guess, you know, the, the, where, the where the sort of economics of it come in is we can speak to the The powerful positive economic impact of recreation on a landscape so we can say look you know we're not going to try to influence you with campaign contributions but you got to know that when outdoor recreation comes into an area and is and has this strength we're bringing people who visit we're bringing money we're bringing jobs through tourism we're you know local touring companies and restaurants and the whole service industry in an area can be bolstered and boosted and this is proven you know if you look like a look at a place like grand staircase escalante national monument which is a highly controversial national monument also in utah um, it's one of the ones that's under most dire threat right now again because of the politics of utah and the utah delegation they want to see this thing gutted but this is one that was designated by Clinton, um, you know, quite a quite a number of years back, and so it's had a chance to sort of um, be in existence for a number of years, and it is absolutely clear that the local communities around Grand Staircase Escalante are benefiting in huge ways economically from the monument's presence because it brings people in, it brings visitors, it brings. Um, Economic value, um, people want to come and live there, or work there, or visit, and so that's an argument that we can wield, even though we're not. Again, we're not sort of using money to uh, to bribe or or influence in ways that are a little bit more unsavory. Uh, so that's that's what it looks like a lot sure. when we're lobbying.
0: Do you see campaign finance reform as one of the primary issues that needs to be addressed? Because it seems to me like that is one of the. Issues that a lot of other issues are based off of. Like if a lobbyist can give a politician a massive amount of money to get them elected. And right now you look at the last few elections, the, the people who tended to do better fundraising were the ones who got elected because they're the ones who can advertise more. They, they're wielding more power. Mm-hmm. Is that a, a issue that concerns you and one that you think should be addressed?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you got to, you know, money is power, and it money talks, you know, in Washington in particular. And again, the only thing that can push back against that is the power of voices and people and constituencies on the ground who also wield power in, the term, in terms of the vote. So um, I think that, uh, you know, the more transparent um, campaign financing can be, um, the more we can have limitations on, on you know, the uh, total amounts of money that, that individuals or corporations can give, um, the better. I mean, I, I think that, you know, unfortunately, decisions like Citizens United from the Supreme Court a couple of years ago <clears throat> have opened the door to a lot more non-transparent money, kind of unlimited coming from corporate sources in particular that really undermines... Our democracy right can you break down citizens United I mean citizens United was essentially this decision by uh, the Supreme Court to allow corporations like individuals to give money through things like super PACs um, to candidates um, to support particular candidates or particular um, other issues that would fall under kind of advocacy advocating for for various bills and whatnot and you know it's' I, you know, the whole, the whole sort of, um, soundbite is that it, you know, it allows corporations to sort of act like individuals. It allows them to have these rights, um, to give money and to do things that, you know, uh, that open the door for a lot of corruption, essentially.
0: The documentary, the corporation Mm -hmm. in it, there's the section where they're defining a corporation and Mm -hmm. a corporation is a legal person.
1: Exactly crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy down to it. It is totally nuts. And yeah, it's really unfortunate I mean, that's the kind of stuff we got to keep fighting against and and Yeah,
0: so uh, one thing i'm really curious to get your perspective on is the role of nonprofits versus private sector moving forward to create change because
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It seems to me that Nonprofits have a place because they are many times in the business of doing good where there aren't markets right mm-hmm. like if you look at a, a nonprofit that um, takes disabled people surfing right mm-hmm. there's not uh, there's never going to be a market for that, mm-hmm. but it's speaking to the morality in us and it's speaking to a very important uh, a very important thing that needs to get done, right mm-hmm. So and and nonprofits have this ability where, where private donors and companies can give to them and it's tax deductible, mm-hmm. which is a really mm-hmm. powerful point in all of this of yes. like how it kind of works. But I think that there seems to be this really weird culture around, the fact that we have this problem that people who are doing really good work in the world with nonprofits shouldn't make money doing it or they shouldn't make mm. much money doing it mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. we don't have the problem we don't have a problem with someone who works in the private sector at a business making a ton of money we'll put them on the cover of a magazine for it mm. so I think that part of this is there's this strange cultural uh there's this strange culture around uh, around people uh, around people who think that there shouldn't be money to m- be made in the nonprofit sector so it attracts those people to private sector jobs mm-hmm. where they can make more money um and i guess i there's kind of like a long-winded verbose question but i'm getting i'm getting at something here which is that do you think that what do you think is the future of nonprofits versus private sector being called upon to create change because the private sector is growing so quickly. And there are all these, there are companies like Patagonia, uh, and, and others that have this kind of moral compass who could be doing this work. So I know that was a, that was, I was (laughs) getting it a lot there, but I'm really interested to hear you speak to all of that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I think nonprofits have a really special place in the system because they do have this unique, um, mission driven, nonprofit motivated goal behind what they're doing. And it's really powerful, you know, it's really, I think it speaks to sort of the better part of our nature to say, look, we're, we're not driving, we're not trying to get money here, we're trying to do something to, to do good, to do, have a positive impact, whether it's on a social issue or an environmental issue or whatever it might be. And I think that's a really powerful model um, that remains powerful. I think the interesting space for me is this kind of overlap between sort of mission-driven, value-driven, nonprofit and the for-profit sector? And there's this kind of gray area uh, or overlap, whatever you want to call it, between those two big swaths of of you know organizations out there that I think is one of the most exciting spaces, you know, happening these days. It's, it's companies like Patagonia that are saying, look, you know, yeah, we're a company that's really proud of making great stuff, high quality gear. We're proud of the fact that we make money and that we're, that we are profitable and that we, we do a good business, but we have as a core part of our mission, this higher calling to use the company to do good and protect the planet in lots of different ways, whether it's through, through our business itself or or through, um, you know, even sort of campaigns that go outside of the company and protect places that we love, what have you. So it's kind of in between. And, you know, I think there's, there's some nonprofits that are moving a little bit more in that way and there's some for-profits that are moving more towards that center space. Um, I think it's just a really exciting place. I think, you know, movements like the B Corp movement where you can, You have a a legal structure, you know, through the law, the B Corp uh, laws, benefit corporation laws that have been set up where a company can not only through its structure um, be accountable to its shareholders for a high profit, it can also have written into its charter and its, its founding documents. Um, the requirement to follow its values and a mission that goes beyond profit. That's super important. That's what B Corp. Yeah, this, 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 it's it's revolutionary because again, your typical corporation has to make a profit. They're, they are, by the way, they're structured. You know, they are responsible to their shareholders to make a profit as their primary number number one priority. Right. They must because they're structured that way. Um, B Corps are saying no. Like, look, we're human, you know, companies are made up of human beings who have other interests than just making profit. And what if we could codify and make legal uh, for a company to say, no, we, we want to do more than just make profit. We want to do good. We want to do something that, um, you know, helps the planet or helps people or what have you.
0: Which is necessary to have it be written into the legal structure, because if Rex Tillerton, the CEO of ExxonMobil, has this psycho-spiritual awakening tomorrow and comes to the office and says, guys, <laughs> we got to stop all of this, <laughs> they'll nod their heads and say- they will
1: be fired the next day.
0: Yes. And you yeah. will get a letter in the mail the next day, Rex Tillerton. It does it so, it, so it supersedes individual values, which is what's so dangerous, it seems, about public companies without any statutes written into it
1: around morality. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that's not to say that there's, you know, there's a lot of public companies out there that again, companies are made up of people and there's a lot of good people working in public companies doing incredible work and working as hard as they can within that structure to do what they can to advance good work, to do good, good sort of philanthropy and giving to even have campaigns and step forward on things like climate change or you know issues that are absolutely pressing but at the end of the day if you're part of a publicly traded corporation you run into this wall or this barrier at some point you're going to run into it where profit um, the choice between making a profit and doing the right thing will be um, smack in front of you right and i think that's something that the b corp model is trying to provide a solution to or an alternative path um and you know it's not to say that at patagonia we don't also face decisions where there's a decision around well okay, if we wanna design a certain product, if we wanna have it be waterproof or durable or X, Y, or Z, that we're gonna to have to make some decisions around the types of chemicals we use and the types of processing that happens, some of which may not be as environmentally friendly as we want it to be. Um, you know, our, The second part of our mission is do no unnecessary harm. It's not do no harm because we know that we still have an impact. You know, We're not lily white here. You know, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, let's try our hardest and let's think about other other paths forward like the b Corp model where we can we can stick to our mission do the best we can and drive forward on these other values oriented um, propositions not just profit
0: what do you have moving forward man like what's your your day-to-day and your role in all of this
1: Yeah. You know, never been busier. I mean, (laughs) the one thing about the current administration and you know, the situation we're facing here in the U S is the issues we care about everything from public lands to, um, wild rivers to, you know, climate change. All these issues are frankly under greater threat than I've ever seen in my lifetime, certainly in my career. And so It's more a matter day to day of making choices around what to fight on and what to put most of our resources towards, because there is so much. There's so much um, under threat. Yeah, you got to pick your battles. we got to pick the battles. And, I mean, there's the Arctic, the, the Arctic Refuge that is being threatened with oil drilling right now. You know, with the budget bill that's going through Congress, they want to tack that in and, and use that as a source of revenue going forward. There's Pebble Mine is rearing its head again in Alaska. You know, this is a, the largest new copper and gold mine which would be based at the headwaters of, of the two most productive salmon-producing streams in the world. They want to put a an enormous... Open pit mine, which would pollute these rivers forever, um, at the at the headwaters of the rivers. You know that's that's rearing its head again. Um, you know, like it kind of goes. It's overwhelming on some days because there's so much. Are you going to spontaneously but, combust into flames? <laughs> I know it's like it's it's uh, it makes us busy. I will say that. So we're we're just trying to make those strategic decisions, do as much as we can, and you know, luckily the company is committed to that. And we've got a lead, the leadership and everybody who works here is saying, look, put the pedal down and we'll do as much as we can.
0: So what do you look at when, uh, when you're deciding what to fight and what to, um, what to not fight? I mean, like, so is is <clears throat> yeah. it start usually with a local group saying, Hey, uh, there's this company coming to our local river. Um, this is a great spot. We really care about it. We could use the megaphone of Patagonia on our team and some funding from the grants to, uh, actually try and try and solve this and conserve this area. So what is it? That, what is the conversation that's happening inside your mind as you mm-hmm. are deciding
1: whether or not to get involved? Well, some of it's dictated by the times. So, you know, during the Obama administration, it was more about going on offense. You know, we wanted to proactively protect new places that had never been protected before. Um, So we went on offense to get as many national monuments protected as as possible. You know, we supported that. We supported all those campaigns. Um, During a time like this, it's hard. A lot of it is about defense. It's about saying, okay, there's certain threats that are that are rearing their heads which ones have we fought on before? Where do we have an authentic connection to local communities? Where can we mobilize the grassroots most effectively because we have people who live in those communities or work in those communities or we have you know, stores or Patagonia employees who are based there or maybe we have ambassadors, you know, athletes that are connected to those places. We have to look at sort of where, where do we have the most connection and it has to be a really authentic connection or otherwise, our storytelling doesn't mean anything to anyone. And then, you know, where can we, you know, where can we literally make a difference is, you know, some of these issues are tougher and some, some of them we see a point where we're like, wow, if we can just convince this one person, this one member of Congress or these five members of Congress or our local, you know, government to do X, Y, or Z, we could really get something done. So we try to sort of say, well, where are we connected most? Where have we fought in the past? what's most under threat and then what are the leverage points, you know, what's, what are the targets and strategy around that?
0: And the criteria is conservation. It's like on the ground, real kind of foot uh, boots on the ground style projects. Most often, most often I
1: think, yeah, that's what really is attractive to us. And, you know, we definitely also, we do work on climate change. We do work on issues that have global, Ramifications and are harder to sort of pinpoint on the ground, um, but I would say our bread and butter even is da- you know land and water protection and, and you know the protecting places that uh, uh, that mean a lot to us. Right,
0: and there's uh, a couple different. Well, so we'll wrap this up. But let's say someone's listening to this and they're psyched and they have an area that's close to their home that they want to get involved with. What are the first steps that they could take? to um what would you recommend their first steps being to make something happen or conserve a place that they love and play
1: yeah i'd say the first thing you should do is look and see if there's any local nonprofit organizations that are working on it already so who's out there like what's what you know is there a group that's the friends of the whatever that's already working on it if there is great go to one of their meetings check out one of their events go see if you can volunteer with them, see if you can donate, see if you can do something to contribute to that group that's fighting already on behalf of that place. If there isn't a group, then maybe you should start to get together a couple friends who care about it and, and just see, you know, try to define what the challenge is and what solution you may be able to come up with, even with a small group of people, you know, is it stopping something bad like a, a new power plant on your beach? which is happening in the next town, you know, down from here in Oxnard? Is it, um, trying to take an old bad thing out, like the dam up here on the Ventura river? What is it? And who are the decision makers who could help change what's happening there? And then how can you get to them? Can you just start, can you write a letter to the editor? Can you, uh, go to a town hall meeting or a city council meeting and speak out? You know, what are the simple things that you can, you can do to get started with it? Um, And then go from there. I think, you know, it's hard if there isn't a local organization already in place because then it's kind of on you to figure it out.
0: Nonprofits are hard to start. I was thinking about starting one when I was younger (laughs) and then I saw I was like, I think I'll be fiscally sponsored by someone instead. So that's a way for so like for people who don't know what that is. When I would do a lot of my micro documentaries, I would get. Donations that the donors would want to be tax deductible and the way that they would do that is they would give the donation to save the waves, which was my fiscal sponsor and then save the waves would move that money laterally to me um, they would basically serve as the conduit because it's not usually worth setting up a nonprofit unless you have a few different employees and love paperwork
1: is <laughs> <laughs> true. And I mean, luckily the nonprofit sort of sector is well developed out there. So often right. there are, there are often groups or there might even be a regional group that you can get interested mm-hmm. in your cause. Um, Or again, you can just start with a letter to a decision maker or a letter to your local paper to say, Hey, I'm noticing this happening. Does anyone else care? What's, you know, what can we do about this? Even sort of posing an open-ended question like that to your own community could bring other people out of the woodwork or other groups that are already thinking about it that you just don't even know about. So I think, you know, the thing about one thing that (laughs) it's a really core, another core value here at Patagonia is the sort of concept of civic engagement that you know we're really trained from day one to be good consumers and it's, it's done through all the advertising we're exposed to and from day one we're like okay let's talk about the prices of things let's talk about shopping and let's get all the advertising input from radio and TV and everywhere you know we are immersed in that 24 7 we are not immersed in a similar set of information around how to be a good citizen and so there's some really cool um, resources out there. There's one that someone named Annie Leonard, um, she's the head of Greenpeace US now. Um, story of Stuff. And the Story of Stuff was a really cool project. She did, and she did. She made a really neat video. She made this series of videos. Some of them were about waste reduction and what we should do about the problem with garbage. But she made this really cool one about being a citizen. And uh, it's called the Story, the story of, of Change. change yeah. yeah, the Story of Change. And it sort of speaks to this, you know, in the importance of sort of flexing your citizen muscle, and how if you aren't in practice at being a citizen, and what being a citizen means is voting. It means knowing, you know, what your local candidates are interested in and what they're all about. It means going to, it means paying attention to what's happening in your local papers and the local issues on on the ballot. And it means, you know, if something comes up, it means speaking out. It means finding a way to. Uh, put your voice out there on an issue and finding others to work with on it. Maybe it's other others in the nonprofit sector or just friends of yours. So what, is, what does it mean to be a citizen? And, you know, I think that's a skill set and a space where there's a lot of work to do in this country. And it's something that Patagonia has worked on quite a bit, too, through our tools for grassroots activist book and conference. You know, we're trying to help people. We're trying to not only have campaigns to help people get engaged, but also give them the basic skills to be a citizen and be an activist and and be someone who, you know, is ready to take on the next big challenge out there.
0: Thanks so much for taking the time, Hans. (laughs) All right. Really enjoyed
1: this conversation. Likewise. Appreciate it.
0: That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to play you out with a song by one of my favorite bands, Amadeus and Miriam. And this is a song called Magosa. I will link to their band page underneath the show notes. If you like this podcast, if you love this podcast, please donate. It is supported by listeners like you. So head over to the website, kyle.surf, and make a donation. If you're low on cash, I totally get it. There are a ton of other ways to support this podcast that don't cost you anything. By giving it a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast medium you listen from, it helps other people find this show. Also, just sharing it with a friend. If you think someone would enjoy this conversation, text it to them. All right. I got a ton of good podcasts coming out in the days ahead. So stay tuned. And until then, get outside. Give someone a high five and take a deep breath because it's a beautiful world out there. Don't forget that.